Well, from books to graphic novels, from movies and TV and even video games, we continue to be fascinated with end-of-the-world kind of themes, don't we? Those stories seem to just keep on coming. Over the last hundred years or so, those have just been a focus generation after generation after generation. It just keeps coming. And I'm wondering why that is. Why does that fascinate us? As we look at all these stories that presented to us in all these different formats, the causes are different. Every time the cause is different, I mean, the categories are, you know, alien invasions, uh, zombie attacks, uh, asteroids wiping out the planet, uh, some kind of natural disaster, or even nuclear war. I mean, all these different ideas and all these different stories that swirl around, and they just keep drawing our attention back and keeping us focused on this kind of a theme. And I wonder if it's because deep down, we know that our history has its appointed end already written. That the end of our story has been written in stone and it is firm and it is coming. And so we wonder about this. Uh, Douglas Webster points out that the problem with movies over the last few generations, as long as we've had them, is this. Movies and similar media have taught us to listen with our eyes Listen with our eyes and think with our feelings. Instead of listening with our ears and thinking with our minds and reflections. And the problem is, if we take this approach that we want to see all these fancy and crazy things that we see on the screen, if we want to take that, that fictional approach and that flashy approach to looking at the end, and we bring that lens to the book of Revelation, we'll find ourselves distracted, diverted from the truth of the book, and wandering in strange places. Remember that the book of Revelation was not given to us to educate us simply with facts about the end. It was not given to us merely to entertain us with descriptions of those future events. The book of Revelation, like all of Scripture, has been given to us to engage us with the truth. To engage us in the truth. And so when we read the book of Revelation, we ask ourselves, what does this book do for us? That's a good question. What does this book do for us in terms of our mindset? And how we view ourselves and this life and the way that we live? And how we view God and enter into worship and live before Him? in how we view the world around us and how we interact with the world around us on many different levels? That's a good, healthy question to ask. What does this book do for us as it renews our mind? But we need to go to another layer with questions as we read the book of Revelation, as we should with all Scripture. And it's not just what does this book do for us, but we need to ask the question as well, what does this book do to us? What does it do to our hearts as we read the truth here? What does it do to our lives as it motivates action? What response does this book draw from us as we read it? That is something that needs to be close to the surface of our hearts and our minds as we read together. 
Imagine this morning that you were in a church in first century Asia Minor, currently Turkey. You'd walked into the house and you'd gathered into this crowded house and everybody's piled up and the kids are sitting on top of each other and everybody's gathered around, the room is full. And the pastor says, as we begin this morning, I have something very, very different for you today. We're not going to go through the service the way we normally would. Because our brother John has had a letter smuggled out of exile. And it was delivered to me early this week, and I took it and I read it. And I read it over and over and over again. And it is just, it is just amazing. It is loaded. There's so many things here. But it was written to us. It was written for us. And so this morning, I'm simply going to take the time to just read it through. And so the pastor begins. And he opens this letter and he starts to read the words of John. And that description of Jesus we saw in chapter 1. And he's got the hearts and the minds and the eyes and the ears and the voices all just stilled in his presence, focused on words that describe Jesus as he is. And then he moves on and he moves through the book. And as he, as he reads, people suddenly hear their name. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, Ephesus, that's us! And they hear a word from Jesus, a message from Jesus directed right to them. But he doesn't stop there. As he continues to read, there's other churches in other cities, and we know those cities, and we know those churches, we know those people. And we hear that he's got something directly to say to them, and we're picturing them as they meet together, reading the same letter on the same day, and wondering if their response is going to be the same as ours. And then as we're listening to this message that, that the Spirit has for the churches, the scene shifts, and, and now we're taken to chapter 4, and we see the throne room of heaven. And we're walked through all the, the process that we've looked at these past weeks. The throne room of heaven. And we're taken through all these future promises, not predictions. These are promises from God of what He has done um, declared and determined will take place. And as we read through that and we get to the end and our hearts and our minds are swimming trying to just digest it all, thinking about the things that are standing out to each one of us, the letter starts to wind down and the pastor reads this in what we have as chapter 22, verse 16 as we divide it up for ourselves to make it a little easier. And he says this, I... Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Well, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. 
He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And he sits the letter down. And the room is completely silent. As the church looks around, trying to digest all that they've heard, and saying, well, what now? What do we do with that? And their minds are swimming, and they've got so many questions, and they want to go back to so many different parts, and you can just imagine. Well, that scene was played out in seven different churches. Maybe on the same Sunday, maybe on subsequent Sundays, as the mail route made its route around. The trade routes of Asia Minor. Here early in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, we have seven letters written by, dictated by Jesus. From Him, the Lord of the church, directed to these seven churches. These are letters written by Jesus, dictated by Jesus, to real people like you and I. Gathered as real churches, in real cities, facing real problems. And he had a word to say to each of them. Now some people look at the, the letters to the churches in Revelation. And they say, well, these are just referencing like different periods of history and church history. Well, like the problem with that is every 150 years or so you've got to re re redo your chart because you're trying to figure out which one are we in now. Some people say, well, it's just talking about the spirit of the churches. I am convinced these are real letters from Jesus to real people gathered as real churches in these seven cities in first century Asia Minor. And they received these letters and they read them. And they heard their name and the message to them and they heard the messages to all the churches. They heard all the details and that's what they were left with at the end as, as the letter wound down was looking at each other and saying, well, what now? How do you follow up a letter like this? What do you do? I think it's quite reasonable to assume that at least someone in that gathering may have had the nerve to shout out, we'll go back to the part about us again. <laughs> I mean, we were mentioned there. Let's hear that part again. Just one more time. It was short. Just tell us that part one more time. Having heard all of this, and in light of all of this, what was directed specifically at us again? And that's what we're going to do, having taken this approach to the book of Revelation. We've looked at chapter 1, and we've seen that the focus of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to strengthen the church living in difficult days in a hostile environment. And then we took weeks to look at, at the four keys to understanding the book of Revelation and to really understanding life itself. Four keys, four themes that continue to emerge consistently throughout the book. And those are the throne of God, the storm of judgment, the Lamb of God, our great rescuer, and the city, the final city, the new Jerusalem, our eternal home. And having taken all of that into account, we are now through that lens going to come back, as I'm sure they must have, 
back to these letters, and we're going to view these letters together. And as we do over these next weeks, there is a sense in which we are, we are reading someone else's mail. This was not written uh, to us. This was written to them. But in the plan of God and in the purposes of God, while it wasn't written specifically to us, it was certainly written for us. And so we're going to come and we're going to consider not just the history and not just the facts as we go through these letters, but we'll consider their hearts and in the process examine our own in light of what God has to say to us through His Word in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So we'll begin this morning in Revelation chapter 2 and look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. Let's pray as we, as we begin. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Word directed at these churches in the first century. The help, the hope, the correction, the comfort, the strength that it brought. And we need those same things today. We're grateful that You have preserved Your Word and delivered it to us. And that You continue by Your Spirit to speak through Your Word to the hearts and lives of Your people. And we are gathered around these letters, this particular letter today, to hear not just what You said, but to hear what You continue to say. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond as we hear Your Word now. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2 begins this way. Having described Jesus, who He is, what He looks like, where He is, what He's doing, we then read these words. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Having heard the description of Jesus, the church in Ephesus is up first, and they hear this, this message addressed to them. And he says, to the angel of the church, well, what is that all about? Some people believe that means that every church has a guardian angel, or that this is talking about the prevailing spirit of the church. I believe he's actually talking about the pastor of the church. Don't get carried away. I know we're not angels. <laughs> but the word is messenger. And I believe it can be taken that way and probably should be. The messenger of the church. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Isn't it interesting he doesn't say to the church of Ephesus? He says to the church in Ephesus. Why? Because it wasn't the church of Ephesus, it was the church of Jesus Christ, which happened to be in Ephesus. Just like there isn't a Canadian church or the Church of Canada, there is the church in Canada. You see, the church is the church of Jesus Christ, the called out ones whose citizenship is, is in heaven, whose citizenship is in the, our home, the final city, amen? That means this is where we reside, it's not where we belong. That's a good, healthy reminder to these churches in these cities in the first century, and it's a good, healthy reminder to us today. This is where we reside. It's not where we belong. To the church in Ephesus, Ephesus, it was an important city. It was a big city for its time. 150,000, maybe three, 300,000 maybe. It was a port city. Now today, if you do one of those tours that does the tours through Turkey of the seven churches, you'll find that it's not a port. Well, things change there as they have in many places around the world, even as they have with Lake Erie. And uh, it's, it's a little inland now, but at the time it was a port city. And it was an important city in the Roman Empire, in this province that they had established for themselves. It was an important city politically. The Romans had a great strong presence there, not just militarily, but politically as well with their local governors. It was an important city politically. It was an important city economically. Three major trade routes of the world converged right there and met at Ephesus. It was a bustling place. It was an important place economically. It was a place known for the worship of the emperor. There were many temples to false gods throughout Ephesus and many temples to emperors past and present in the Roman Empire. It was a place that loved its entertainment. They had a massive athletic arena and a 25,000-seat theater. They loved their entertainment. If you want to hear more about Ephesus, the, the city and, and the church and how it began, you can look at the way the Apostle Paul first began to teach there and preach there and share the gospel, and as people came to Christ, start planting a church there. And That record is found in Acts chapters 18 to 20. After Paul was done there and moved on, he sent Timothy back to pastor this church. John would later spend some time there as well. The book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus by Paul about 30 years before this book was written. A lot to be learned about the church in Ephesus from these things. But Jesus is speaking to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. And he identifies himself as the author. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you remember from our message in Revelation chapter 1, if you just look right up above this, that's what's going on. The picture of Jesus holding the seven stars standing amongst the lampstands. The seven stars are the messengers of those churches that are in his hand, and those seven lampstands are the seven churches, and Jesus is right there walking amongst them. That is significant. Each of these seven letters in its introduction will refer back to one aspect of the description of Jesus in chapter 1. And it will draw on that for, for its picture going forward. And here is Jesus, pictured as the one holding the messenger of the church in his hand, walking amongst the churches. He's there in a position of authority 
and power and comfort, making his presence known as the shepherd of the church. He's right there with them. And he's saying, this isn't a letter from some distant person. Well, I thought it was a letter from John, who's on the island of Patmos over in the Aegean Sea, about 60 miles from here, in, in, in prison there, in exile. Well, yes, John wrote the letter from a distance and sent it to you. But Jesus dictated the letter from right up close and personal right there amongst you. And I wonder what that in itself did for the worship of the people in Ephesus right there that morning. Jesus is right here. Jesus is meeting with us. Jesus is among his people. And I wonder what that knowledge does for you and I in our worship as we gather right here in Harrow 2,000 years later. That knowledge that Jesus isn't just some distant being somewhere. He makes his presence known. He is here meeting with his people. He is among the churches. He is among his people. He is with his people. What difference does that make as you prepare to come to church? What difference does that make as we engage in worship together? What difference does that make as we go home and reflect on on what's taken place and respond to what's taken place? To know that Jesus is right there with his people amongst his churches. He's right here. Well, having introduced the letter this way, he then gets to the message that he has for them. He begins with the words, I know. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the Lamb? The description of the Lamb of God? The all-seeing, all-knowing Lamb of God? I know. I see all and I know all. I know who you are, I know where you are, and I know what's going on. I know your deeds. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I know how hard you're working. It's not gone unnoticed. I see that you're serving hard in the church and as a church. You're working hard. You're active for the Lord. You are patient in the face of opposition, which is great and it is growing. You are patient and enduring and holding up under this opposition. Over in chapter 13, When we read about the first beast, we see in chapter 9, verse 9 rather, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. There's a phrase that every church will hear in these letters. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Don't miss this. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Same phrases. The patient endurance of the the saints. Over in chapter 14, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here is a church that is doing that. They're active, they're working, they're patient and enduring and holding up under great opposition. How do they do it? Well, friends, eternity matters now. Why do we talk about eternity? Not, oh, it'll be better someday. But we talk about eternity to say, look at it. Look at who sits on the throne there because he's the one who sits on the throne now. Look at how this all turns out because God has declared it to be so. He has determined it has to be so. He has written it that way and declared that that's the way it will be. We are safe and secure in his hands. 
And look at how whatever needs to be faced and endured by the church in the meantime, by the church as we go along, look at where we end up in the presence of God forever as his people with him. Look at that. And that understanding of eternity is the anchor to our endurance. It roots us in our faith in Jesus, the conquering risen lamb, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It anchors our hearts at home, and it strengthens us for endurance even now. And Jesus says to them, I see your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I see how hard you work. You remember back to Ephesians chapter 2? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And even that's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works so that nobody can boast. But if you want to talk about works, here's what's of works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's lined up in advance for us to do. The church in Ephesus 30 years earlier took that word from Paul and they took it to heart. And they said, if God has saved us by his grace alone, given us forgiveness and life in Jesus, and has prepared in advance things for us to do, then let's get busy and get them done. And they took it seriously, and they got to work, and they worked for 30 years. 30 years later, they're still working hard. They took it seriously. And they passed on that process to the generations coming behind, because 30 years later, this church is still known for its hard work. And Jesus says, I know your hard work. I see it. He says, I, I know that you don't tolerate evil. You don't tolerate sin. You don't tolerate false teaching. In his final meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul, when he met with them in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul warned them to be on guard against false teaching. Evil men who will come in and twist things and try and make it about them and try and gather people around them instead of Jesus. And they took that to heart. And they studied the word and they could smell out and they tested false teaching. And they refused and rejected false teachers. They took that seriously. And so must we. It is critical that we know the gospel. It is critical that we know our Bibles. It's critical that we know and understand doctrine. Oh, people don't want to. We have to know it. Why? So that we can know when we hear a teacher whether they are building up our faith in Jesus or whether they're trying to build up our faith in them or whether they're trying to build up our faith in ourselves. We have to know the truth and be on guard against error. And they were. And Jesus commends them for it. He commends them for their stamina and faithfulness. In verse 3, bearing up for His name's sake in the persecution they're facing. We carry Jesus' name and we are a target, but it's for Him and in Him that we live. And so whether it's life and it's service in the church or whether it's facing persecution in the world around us, we will do it and bear it for him. And he says, that's not gone unseen. I know it. I see it. I see it. I'm right here with you. 
He says in verse 6, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. We're going to find a church next week that embraced the practice of the Nicolaitans. He said, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans and so do I. Well, what are they all about? The Nicolaitans were a group that out of relig- in the name of religious liberty and for the purpose of political expediency and self-preservation, they took some of the uh, idolatrous worship of the false gods in Ephesus and some of the sexually immoral practices that would take place in the name of and as rituals as a part of the worship of those pagan gods. And they took those and they incorporated some of that into, quote, Christian worship. So that we're not all that different. That, that we appear to be a part of this thing and we won't really be, be punished for not getting along with everyone else. And Jesus said, I hate that. And so do you. So do you. Good job. Good job. The church in Ephesus in the first century was a good church. We would be happy to join that church. We would be happy to plug in and serve alongside these brothers and sisters in Christ. We'd be excited to do that. If you had friends or family moving to Ephesus, you'd say, here's the contact information. Check out that church. That's where you want to plug in. There's a lot to be commended by Jesus for this church. And in the middle of this message, in in verse 4, there's a three-letter word that's one of those hinge words on which everything kind of flips. But. But. And like an athlete at the top of his game in the best shape of his life, except for that unseen and undetected heart disease, which means that no matter how active he is, no matter how effective he appears to be, no matter how attractive he appears to be, no matter how strong he appears to be, at any moment a collapse and calamity await. Just like that, this busy, solid, active church in Ephesus had a major problem. You've heard it said that the the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Well, in Ephesus, the heart of the problem was the problem of the heart. They had passed along a process that had a missing ingredient. And Jesus calls them in in Ephesus to have 3D ministry. 3D ministry. He, He gives them a new lens through which they're to look and examine their hearts and their ministry so that they'll know if something's missing. He says, I know your deeds, your works. That's good. You need to be working for me. I've got things for you to do. Good job. You've got doctrine. So you've got deeds and you've got doctrine. There's the second D. You're making sure you're teaching the truth and you're standing against error and you won't back down. Fantastic. That's good. Both of those things are necessary. But you're missing the third D. And so what happens is when I look at your ministry, it's like it it looks good on paper. It looks good on paper. And, and you've got it kind of flat and black and white on the page. But it doesn't pop. There's no life to it. There's no 3D, real life element to it. Uh, kind of like the third period for the Leafs last night. <laughs> looks good on paper. Wow. 
No 3D effect. No life there, right? And that's what he's saying. What's this third D? It's devotion. You need deeds to work and serve. You need doctrine that needs to be correct. This is about truth, but you need devotion. There has to be a heart underneath it all, the foundation from which everything else springs. This is what makes it pop. This is what makes it life. This is what makes it live and engage other people. This, this love, this heart underneath it all. And he says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Take a look at that word. Abandoned. He doesn't say you've forgotten. He doesn't even say you've neglected. He says you've abandoned. You have walked away from that. And it might have only been one small step at a time. But you have walked away from the love you had at first. And brothers and sisters, this morning, without love for Christ above all, without love for each other, and without love for the lost, we've got nothing. And what happens is when we don't have that love for God above everything else, when we don't have that love for each other and that love for the lost, what happens is we, we get pulled into this place of pride where we start thinking this is about us. We get pulled into a place of formality and fruitlessness and inactive witness. And so we continue to serve out of duty and we have activity going and we have doctrine. We make sure we've got all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but we're doing it all with a cold heart towards God and each other and, and the lost out there. And it's totally ineffective. And in an effort to weed out the false, we become overly suspicious of each other. And, 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 and it's just incredible what happens. And he says, as a result of this, you've got a major problem. Because the deeds and the doctrine are, are fine and they look good. And on paper, when people are reading about your church, they're going to think this is fantastic. But if they could walk in the door, they'll see there's something missing. It doesn't pop. It doesn't come to life. It doesn't engage and invite others in. Why? Because there's no heart there. What was the first commandment, Jesus said? When he was asked, what is the first, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't, didn't hesitate. He knew. Was it work hard? Was it study hard? Those things are important. But he said the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. With everything you have and everything you are, love God first. Because when your heart and your mind and your life is focused on Him, everything else will fall into place. And the second thing he says, I'm going to give you a bonus. I'll give you the top two. Love God with everything you have and everything you are. And then love each other as yourselves. Then love others. And he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two pegs. You pull out those two things, love for God and love for others, and the whole thing falls apart. And that's what happened in the church in Ephesus. Without this love for God at the root of it all, which spills over into love for each other and love for the lost, the heart of the church becomes superficial and sentimental. And it might be active, but it's ineffective. As Vance Havner once observed, when Jesus was 12, his parents lost him at church. And they are not 
the last people to do so. Oh, we've got to guard our heart, don't we? And that's what Jesus is saying as he's calling out to the church in Ephesus. And so as he calls out to them and says, I know what you're doing, and I know how hard you're working, and I know how faithful you are to the truth, and I know that you're, you're weeding out evil and false teaching. I know all of that, but underneath it all, what's going on? There's something missing. And so he gives them three R's to correct their life and ministry and bring it back into a 3D ministry. He says, remember, in verse 5, remember from where you've fallen. Remember your sin and your need? Remember the rescue of God, the mercy and grace of God, the provision that he made in Jesus? Do you remember that? Do you remember how you responded to that? Do you remember how you loved God with everything you had because of it? Remember how you looked at each other and just loved your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is so exciting. We get to share the mercy and grace of God together. Remember how you looked at other people? And you looked at the lost and your heart was heavy and burdened because you loved them and you saw them as lost and trapped in darkness and needing Jesus? Remember that? Do you remember that first love that you had back at the beginning? And the words he's using here, the, the grammar, is not just remember and walk away. It's remember and keep on remembering. Stop forgetting. Keep remembering. Keep remembering what that was like at first. And friends, that's why we keep on reviewing the gospel so regularly. Why do we talk about the gospel so much? Because people who don't know Jesus need it. Because people who do need to be reminded of it. Amen? That's the heart of it all. Remember. Remember the height from where you've fallen. Remember what it was like then. Repent. Turn your back 180 degrees and go the other way. Quit wandering off in the direction you're going into cold formality and turn back this way and keep going. Let's go walk back with me and then return. Do the works you did at first. Return to the way it was with a love for God above all else, a love for each other, and a love for the lost. Re return to that. And then he says, if you don't, if you don't, I'll come and I'll remove your lampstand. I'll pick up my lampstand and I'll go somewhere else where they will. And oh, you'll be left with a sterile but lifeless group. Douglas Webster points out that there are three countercultural truths to be found in these seven letters. The first is that our brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, that was John describes himself in chapter 1. John was not a paid consultant. He was a prophetic voice. Issues of growth, vitality, leadership, and mission are spiritual issues that require spiritual discipline and a prophetic word. When churches are in trouble or in need of correction, the problem is not the lack of business expertise or of marketing savvy or of social networking. The problem is a failure to be transformed by the truth of God. 
the prophet says, to give yourselves to worship and to prayer and to serving the poor and the lost. The consultant tells you how to raise funds from people with deep pockets. There is nothing in these seven letters that indicates that churches will grow through effective event planning. The vision that lies behind these letters is an organic church growth strategy. Authentic spirituality is the key. It comes from the heart and it brings the deeds and the doctrine to life. The second countercultural truth in these letters is that we are in this together. We are not merely a group of individuals. We belong to each other as well as with each other. Scripture says that throughout. We belong together as a church and as the church. We're not alone. And thirdly, you can't take the church for granted. You can't take the church for granted. Just because you've got a building doesn't mean you've got a church. If the lampstand's removed, people might be left in a dark building, but they'll have no impact, no gospel light, and no presence of God. And as Moses pled with God in Exodus 33, before, the exodus, before leading the people forward towards the land, what did he say? If you are not with us, what else will make us different from anybody else? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus had a word of encouragement to the church in Ephesus. I'm with you. I'm right here. I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. You're doing well in these ways. You're, you're doing well with your service. You're doing well with the doctrine. You're doing well with rooting out false teaching and evil. But you need the heart underneath it. You need the heart underneath it. And he concludes with these powerful words. First he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. That phrase will be repeated throughout this book, and we've seen it in a few places. It will be repeated at the end of these letters, and Jesus used this phrase regularly when he was teaching in the Gospels. If you have an ear to hear, hear. Well, what does that mean? We've all got ears. We all hear lots of things, but only some people listen. And Jesus is saying, hear the message, not merely the words. Hear the message. Hear the message. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. It means this. It means there can be no finger pointing. It means if you're sitting in Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira and you're reading this, you don't get to go, oh, those Ephesians. I knew, I knew it was too good to be true. <laughs> oh, it looks good with their programs and their, and their teaching, but I knew there was a problem. There's no finger pointing. Why? You're next. You're next. It means Philadelphia and Laodicea can't point at those guys and say, well, hey, what, what's your problem? It, it means that we are all susceptible to the dangers the churches face because people are people no matter where and when we live. And so we've got to guard our hearts. The same dangers face us. But here's what he says. Look at this. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We looked at that last week. To the one who overcomes, the one who conquers. Well, in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus, the, the risen lamb, is the one who has conquered. But we are told in chapter 12, verse 11, uh, I, I won't go into the whole scene there, 
in chapter 12, verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They were willing to die for Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And while they looked like they'd been defeated and crushed and killed and removed and erased and conquered, they had actually overcome and conquered in the name of the Lamb. Amen? Faithful no matter what. That's why we read from, Revelation, from Romans chapter 8 this morning. What, what, can, what can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? We're, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through Him who loved us. To Him who conquers, to Him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Oh, in the paradise of God. The tree of life that that's just lines the river of life coming from the throne down the center of the city. Every month, a new crop. Come and eat all you want. You know, in the city of Ephesus, the largest temple was to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. It was built on an ancient tree shrine, and the image of the date palm tree symbolized this goddess and her city. And what does Jesus say to the people living there, his people living there, the church that resides there but doesn't belong? He's saying, don't be seduced by this place by who it is, what it is, what it's all about, and what it appears to have to offer, you conquer, you overcome, get back to the place where you love God first, love each other, and love the lost. Get back to that. Have that heart to your ministry. Overcome. And there is a city and a tree and some fruit waiting that'll make this look like nothing worth comparing it to. The true city true tree the true fruit is waiting hang in there he says come on Ephesus you're doing well you're doing well but the heart needs some attention hmm. I asked myself this week and I asked myself this morning how would Jesus assess my or our 3d ministry our deeds and our doctrine and our devotion I ask us to consider who is at the heart of Harrow Baptist Church in all that we do. Is it me? Is it you? Is it us? Is it Jesus? How is my, how is our first love for God? How is our first love for each other? And for those outside these walls who need Jesus. We're told to keep on remembering and never forget what it was like to first embrace the truth of the gospel. Is there anything that we need to repent of? Anything we need to return to? Friends, may our focus be Jesus. And may our hearts be encouraged this morning in this generation as we serve Him here, together, in difficult days in a hostile environment. But He is with us. He is among us. Even now, even now.